Uh, Colossians 1 is a, a great text. We've been looking here at Colossians 1. This is a personal text. And let me just kind of remind you of some of the things that we've talked about as we've gone through Colossians 1, things that I want to be true of my ministry. And these are the kind of things I've, I've thought about while going through this passage. The first week I said this, you know, I, I want to suffer for your sake. We saw that in, in verse uh, 24. I want to suffer for your sake. And uh, we saw there that suffering is beneficial for me, it's beneficial for you, it's beneficial for us. Uh, I want to suffer for your sake. The, the second thing that we looked at last week is that uh, I want to proclaim the beauty of Jesus Christ through the teaching of the Word. That's something I want to be true of my ministry over the next seven years and beyond as the Lord allows. I want to proclaim the beauty of, of Jesus Christ through the teaching of the Word. And then this morning, what we're going to see is that I want to present every person complete in Christ. That's one of my, my goals as a, a minister of the gospel. I want to present every person complete in Christ. That's something that drives me. It's something that drives the ministries of this church. And we're going to kind of talk through that this morning as well. Paul, in this passage, is addressing the problem the Colossians are struggling with. The answer is the gospel. And here's how he became a minister of the gospel, and what all that entails, he says. So that's, uh, that's the passage, and if you're able to, uh, if you would stand with me uh, in honor of God as we read his word together, and this is uh, Colossians 1, verses 24 through 29. This morning we're specifically looking at verses 28 and 29, but I want to give the, the whole context here. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of, the mist of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In verses 28 and 29, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Uh, you may be seated. May God encourage us uh, through his word this morning. Uh, let, me, let me pray with you and as we pray. We're mindful of this weekend, this, this 4th of July celebration, as we, as Christians, thank God for sovereignly placing us uh, where he has. And Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 would say, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then he gets specific, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. And that's certainly our prayer for the nation in which God has, has placed us. And let's pray to God uh, together this morning. And Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you've placed us by your sovereign hand where you have in the United States of America. And we, we thank you for the, the opportunities we've had as being citizens here. And I thank you for those... Uh, in our church and in our country who have 
sacrificed so much so that we could enjoy freedoms and we could fulfill the, the, the goal here that, that uh, Paul tells Timothy of our prayers, that the goal of leading quiet lives in which we can worship you and, and be godly. And so we thank you for those, uh, for elected officials, uh, for the military, for uh, people who have, have sacrificed through their service so that we could, could do those things. And at the same time, Father, we recognize that uh, we're in a, a challenging time, as, as we've always been, as your people have always been, but, but feel, we feel that this morning, and we pray that you would allow us to continue to, to lead lives of, of godliness, and we pray that our lives of godliness would be live not in isolation, but in, in ways where our, our neighbors and, and others can see our love for you, our love for them, and can respond by placing their faith in your Son Jesus as well for their eternal life salvation for relationship with you. We pray for our government to be faithful to do the thing in which it's been instituted by you to do, that it would uh, punish those who do evil, and that it would protect the innocent. And we pray for the protection of innocence and uh, justice in our country. We pray that we as Christians would be those most passionate about justice and, and righteousness, And Father, we pray uh, this morning as we turn to your word, we pray that you would help us to know it, to understand it, to live in obedience to it. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Seven and a half years ago, whenever I was taking my my first sabbatical, I came to Colossians 1. I was was struggling with, okay, what, what exactly is it that as I get ready to prepare to plant a church, what what exactly does that entail? What exactly is the church to do? If there, is there a passage that I could find that kind of sums up a lot of biblical teaching on what the church is to be and what it's to do? And, and I came to Colossians 1, and specifically verses 28 and 29, I found these two verses immensely encouraging to me. As we thought about our, our purpose statement, trying to come up with a purpose statement that encapsulated what God wanted the church to be about, we, we came to verses 28 and 29, and so we came up with our statement, we exist to, to glorify God as we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and prepare his people to worship him forever. That's, that's straight out of Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Uh, May 18th, 2008 was the, the first time that Bethany Community Church, kind of a core group of people got together to talk about Bethany Community Church. May 18th, 2008, in the the gym at Bethany Baptist Church, our first kind of public gathering of those of us who would make up the, that, the core group that planted the church. and The text that we looked at as we talked about, what are we doing? Why are we here? It was Colossians 1. We, we looked at verses 28 and 29. And this last sabbatical, as I thought, okay, what do I need to do over the next seven years of ministry, the next 14 years of ministry, the next 30 years of ministry as God allows? What do I need to do? Colossians 1, specifically verses 28 and 29. I think that this sabbatical, I was much more conscious of the finite amount of time that I have than I was eight years ago. Eight years ago, it seemed like, you know, I had an eternity to do ministry, and it's, I, I feel still like I'm kind of on the younger side of ministry, but I, I'm more aware now of, of how finite my time is. I realize I don't have an infinite amount of, of time. I realize more now that I don't have an infinite amount of ability. 
It was, it was funny, I was kind of thinking about this this morning. I thought, you know, I thought about some of the things that were going on eight years ago that kind of were not healthy trends in, in Christianity and, and maybe even some teachers that I thought, boy, that's, those are some unhealthy teachers. And at, at that time, I thought, hey, I'll live them. You know, like, I'll outlive that. Now I'm less convinced that that might be true in some of, some of the things that, that I see in, in Christendom. I, you know, I'm, I'm stuck with it. <laughs> my time's finite. My abilities are, are finite. If I, maybe if I had some, some more abilities, different abilities, I, I could do more. But I, but I realize more now than I did eight years ago that the things that I can accomplish over a given 30-year period are not infinite. The things that I can accomplish tomorrow are not infinite. There's a limited amount that I can accomplish. And so the question becomes, what am I going to do with my finite time? What am I going to do? How, and how am I going to decide what it is that I will do or decide what I'm not going to do with the time that God has given me? A few years ago, our family went to Disney, to the Epcot Center, and there was this exhibit there where you can design a car. And so our family kind of hovered over this TV-like display, and you kind of made decisions about what you wanted your car to have. And you could say, well, I want the car to be big, but if you had a big car, it wouldn't be very fast. Or if you had a fast car, it might not be very fuel efficient. And so you had to decide as you went into the design process, what kind of car do we want to end up with? And then as you came to the little TV display, you had a limited amount of time. You had to make some quick decisions, and you were making trade-offs. You said, okay, I'm going to want this instead of that. I want that instead of this because this is the end goal. This is the type of car I want to have. When it comes to ministry, the same is true. I can't do it all. There are a lot of good things that you can do in ministry, but your time is finite. How do you decide this and not that, that and not this? How do you make those decisions? And I believe this passage contains some truths that help me and help you make those decisions. As a pastor, and I'm going to be speaking again first person this morning, as, as a pastor, these are some things that, some truths in these, these two verses that I come to that, that help me make that decision about what God would have me do or what he would say, yeah, Daniel, you, you can't do that. If I had to pick, in fact, just two verses to help me understand my ministry, these would be the two verses. These are two very precious verses to me, and I'm excited about getting to talk about them with you this morning. Three questions that I want to ask from these verses and see the answers in these verses, and and the first question is, is this, what is my ministry? The first question is this, what is my ministry. We see Paul write this, a hymn we proclaim, the beginning of verse 28, hymn we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And that, that word proclaim is the essence of my ministry. And we talked about this last week. I'm proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. What's my ministry? Proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. My, my job there is to, is to proclaim. That word proclaim means to publicly announce. It's, it's this, this public vocal proclamation. And there's this mystery that was hidden. Now it's been known. And my job is not to present myself. My job isn't to present the latest uh, headlines. My job is to ultimately proclaim Christ. That's the sum total of what it is that I'm supposed to do. What is my ministry? Proclaim Christ. But what does that mean? Paul 
now, in verse 28 here, the beginning of verse 28, fleshes out what it means to proclaim Christ as, as a pastor, as, as a person who's in charge of, of publicly proclaiming. He's writing as an apostle, but I think the principles apply to a pastor teacher as well. There's three things that I, I want you to see here about what it means to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. So as we talk about what is my ministry to proclaim Christ as Lord, here are three things about that proclamation. The first is this. Look at the verse. It says, him we proclaim, and then he describes it. Here he describes, proclaim. The first thing he says is, what? You warn everyone. Proclaiming, first of all, involves, number one, warning. That word warning is not a, a part of pastoral ministry that's very popular today, okay? It's kind of a controversial thing to say that as a pastor, you believe you have the responsibility to, to warn others, the word warn there means to admonish. It means to instruct a person who's headed the wrong way. So you see a person that's headed a certain way, and you say, okay, that's, that's the wrong way to head. You admonish them, you warn them, you say, you need to turn and, and walk a different way. To say that a pastor's ministry involves warning is an incredibly controversial thing. In fact, I've been talking to, to some of my, my friends over the past couple weeks, and as we've been kind of interacting, I've seen that this idea that a pastor has the responsibility to, to warn is a controversial thing. It's a controversial thing. Now, I want to spend some time here this morning, okay? We're going to camp out a little bit on this, this first part of, of the, the ministry of proclamation involving warning. I want to share some thoughts with you here because I think this is such a, a countercultural idea. I want you to understand what warning involves. Kind of six thoughts here about warning. First thought is this, and these, these overlap, by the way. The, the word that uh, Paul uses here is nuthateo, which is kind of like a, a Greek word. It's not kind of like, it is a Greek word, nuthateo, and it involves uh, admonishing, warning. It's the word we get nuthetic from, nuthetic counseling. Kind of six overlapping thoughts here about this idea of warning. The first thought is this, uh, we have a responsibility to address specific sins that we see in the lives of others. Okay? We have a responsibility to address specific sins we see in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. For example, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. That's that same word there, warn. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with all. And so what do I do when I see an, an idle brother, a person who's, who's not engaging in, in work? I say, hey, that's, that's not the right way to go, brother. Admonish. There's warning. Titus 3.10, Paul says, for the person who stirs up division, Titus, what do you need to do? You need to, to warn him. And after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. And so if I see a brother stirring up division, what do I do? I warn him. I, I see it. I have to deal with it. I, I warn them. Say, this is not the way you need to live. I, I admonish, I instruct that this path that you're on isn't a path that's going to lead to joy. It's a path that's going to lead to destruction. I, I warn. It's the first thing. A second thing we see, not only do I have responsibility to address specific sins, but I need to understand that warning someone is an essential part of being in relationship with them. If I'm in relationship with you, part of that relationship must entail saying hard things about sin. Paul would tell 
dads in Ephesians 6, 4, he says, hey, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord or admonition of the Lord. It's that same idea. If I have a son or a daughter who's straying, I, I warn them. I say, hey, this is not a, a path that leads to joy. It's a path that leads to destruction. I'm, I'm warning you, and I'm doing it because we're in relationship. Same thing, 2 Thessalonians 3. You warn someone as a brother, Paul says in verse 15 of 2 Thessalonians 3. Colossians 3, later on here in Colossians, describes this. It says, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is talking about within the community of faith. And then he says, teaching and admonishing, that's the same word, warning, admonishing, instructing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. So the idea is that as we exist as a community of faith, even as we're engaged in worship, there should be this relationship in which warning is taking place. So I'm addressing specific sins, and it's in the context of of relationship. It's an essential part of relationship. If we're not in relationship, I'm not warning you. If we are in relationship, I am. A third thought is this. third thought is this. Even though warning is an essential part of being in relationship with one another, warning each other is done with, with gentleness, and with concern for each other, right? Paul would say this in Acts 20, verse 31, the the elders from Ephesus have come to him, and as he talks to them, he says, hey, remember, for three years when I was with you, I did not cease night or day to admonish, that's warn, everyone, and he says, with what? Remember? With tears. I wasn't just saying, hey, Guys, you crazy Ephesians, shape up. There was, there was a pleading, there was a, a concern that he had for them. He was warning them with, with tears. And Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 4.14, I don't write these things to you to make you ashamed. I want to admonish you as my beloved children. There's a love and a concern that he has, and that, that love and concern comes through as he admonishes them. You've, you've heard the story before about the two pastors, right? There was a pastor who was hired by this church, and every Sunday he got up. His message was the same. You guys are all a bunch of sinners, and you're going to hell. The people in the church did not like that message, and it was not too long after he began preaching that that the church had him fired. The elders ran him off. Second pastor comes. Same message. Same message to the people, and they they love him. First pastor goes to one of the elders and says, look, guys, I preach this message and you fire me. This guy preaches the same message and you love him. What's the deal? And the elder said, well, whenever you said that message, you seemed kind of excited about it. This guy says it with tears. You know, there's a lot of things that you can say to me if I know you love me. There's a lot of hard words that you can say to me that I need to hear that I'm much more receptive to if I know you love me and you want the best for me. You say them with tears. This process of warning, admonishing is an essential part of your ministry. It's an essential part of of my ministry, but it has to be done with gentleness and with concern for the eternal well-being of the people to whom we minister. A fourth thing about, about warning here is, is we see that 
the purpose of Scripture, one of the purposes of Scripture is so that we can have a tool by which to warn people. In other words, as I warn people, or two thoughts here. First of all, if I warn people, I need to make sure that my warning is based upon the text of Scripture. And secondly, if I say I don't have a responsibility to warn people, I'm undermining the reason for which, one of the reasons for which purpose, one of the reasons for which Scripture was given us. For example, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's talking about the Israelites and their rebellion against Moses. And he says this in verse 11, Now these things happened to them, the Israelites, as an example, but they were written down for our what? For our instruction, for our admonishment to warn us. One of the reasons that Scripture has been given us is so that we can have warning. And if we deny that warning is a part of our ministry, we deny one of the purposes for which Scripture has been given us. Fifth thought about warning. A fifth thought about warning is if you say that you don't have a responsibility to warn others about the reality of sin, you've undermined the gospel. You've undermined the gospel message itself. As I talk to my, my brothers in some mainline denominational churches who say, look, we just all have to kind of agree to disagree, and yeah, I may, I may. I disagree with this person about what sin is, but we're all still part of the same church. I say, okay, look, buddy, I appreciate your heart attitude here, but, but you understand that by partnering with people who refuse to acknowledge the sinfulness of sin, the reality of, of sin, you're partnering with people who are sometimes intentionally undermining the gospel message. What is the gospel message? The gospel message tells us that there's something from which we need to repent. And if I find a person who is living in a path that's going to lead to their destruction, that's that's walking on this path that leads to destruction, I don't tell them, hey, this is a path from which you need to turn. I have undermined the gospel message. They have nothing to turn from, no need for a savior. Scripture has been given to us so that we can have warning, so we can be instructed. And one of my essential tasks as a, a minister of the gospel is to say, according to God's word, you're walking a path whose end leads to your demise and not your joy. Sixth thing here then, as we think about warning, sixth thing is if you fail to believe that you have a responsibility to warn others about the reality of sin, you're undermining the process of sanctification, of how a person grows in godliness. God has given us his words so that we have warning and so that we can continue to, to grow in Christ's likeness. If we fail to, to grow in, in Christ's likeness, we, we fail to achieve the purpose for which God has created us. We'll talk more about that later. There was a, a person one time who was, who was talking to me about counseling, and, and he said uh, something that was very impactful for me, and it's, it's something that I, I use when I counsel others, and it's something I use when I counsel myself. He said, sometimes you encounter a person who is committed to not heeding what Scripture says. You said, okay, this is how you need to, to treat your family, and this person says, forget it. I, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to continue to do what I'm going to do. And this, this, this person said, here's, what I, here's a verse I leave them with. I say, okay, I can't 
force you to do what God tells you to do, but I want you to remember this, this verse. It's from Proverbs 13, 15, and it says, listen to it, the way of the transgressor is hard. The path of the transgressor is hard. It's true, right? The person who says, I'm going to live a life of sin, has chosen to live a life that is going to be very, very hard. You see, I'm going to pursue a path of of self-fulfillment. That is going to be a hard path. It's not going to be a a path that brings you joy. What is that? That's, That's warning. And if you don't care about a person enough, to tell them, hey, look, you need to understand the way of the transgressor is hard. If, if you don't care about a person enough to tell them that, you failed them in a very profound way. For me, the way of the transgressor is hard. When I harden my heart against the things that I know God wants me to do, it doesn't bring me joy, and I need people to tell me that. The way of the transgressor is hard. It's warning. We see this all throughout Scripture. Paul to, to Peter in, in Galatians chapter 2. Peter, one of the, 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 the apostles of the church, Paul has to tell him, look, uh, he says in Galatians 2, I had to oppose Peter to his face because of how Peter was undermining the gospel. Jesus says hard words for the Pharisee. Uh, Peter in uh, Acts chapter 8, listen to what he says to Simon the magician. Simon, this, this person who tries to, to buy the Holy Spirit, he says, look, I, I like to buy this gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says this to him in Acts chapter 8, look, may your silver perish with you. Those are strong words. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Man, those are strong words, but they're loving words. They're necessary words. A person needs to be warned. If we're going to proclaim Jesus Christ, first of all, we have to warn people of the sin from which they need to turn. How do we do this? There's some applicational thoughts, I think, about just this idea of warning. First of all, you and I need to be people who will receive admonition and instruction and warning, right? We need to be people that others in our lives feel very comfortable talking to us about our own sin. And, and oftentimes our response is people talk to us about things with which we're struggling to be def- defensiveness and, and evasion. And, and uh, well, yeah, I know I do that, but you do this. And it, it's defensiveness and it's, it's just not godly. If we're going to be people who are proclaiming Christ rightly, warning others, we also need to be those who receive admonition, who receive instruction, who receive warning through humility, Right? Okay, sometimes, sometimes in our culture today, a pastor will say, well, look, I, and maybe I'm tempted to say this, look, I just want to be humble, and so I don't want to, I don't want to judge others. And if you define judging others as, as being unwilling to warn them about the reality of sin, you have a hard time, hard time with Colossians 128 and so many other passages, right? And what we see is that Failure to warn others is not humility. It's actually arrogance. 
It's actually arrogance because we're refusing to do what God has told us to do. So, okay, what is my ministry? My ministry is to proclaim Christ. I do that by warning everyone. So there's everyone, all people who are in my sphere, sphere of influence. I warn them. I also, the second thing here about what is my ministry, it's, it's a ministry of proclaiming Christ. I warn, and then the other thing we see here in verse 28 at the beginning is I, I teach everyone. Warning everyone and teaching everyone. You see that there? Again, this is kind of a controversial idea among pastoral ministries sometimes, but our responsibility is to teach everyone. We, we warn them and then we teach them that the gospel message. Earlier in Colossians 1, Paul would say this as he talks about the hope laid up for them in heaven in verse 5 of Colossians 1. He says, Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you is indeed the whole world it is in bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So what happened? They were warned about the realities of sin, and they were taught the gospel. They were taught about Jesus Christ, who he was, what he did, and how they could have peace with God through faith and trust in him. Teaching is an essential part of this ministry of proclamation as well. Now here's the third thing about this ministry of proclamation. We warn everyone and we teach everyone. And how do we do it? This is, this is so important. What does he say? He says you do both with all wisdom. You see, it's not enough for me to be a person who goes around warning everyone and, and teaching everyone. I've got to do it wisely. I've got to do it wisely. I can remember being a, a dad of, of just one kid. I won't mention her name, but um, I remember her being very young, and uh, parents, you, you've, you've experienced this before, it's, there was meltdown, right? Total meltdown. And, you know, you're trying to, to gather up this, this little one-year-old kid and, and try to, you know, try to, try to stop the meltdown or minimize its effects, and, and of course, it's not in the privacy of our home, it's, it's at some church, church function, and and everyone's looking, and, and you, you know this temptation you have. You, you want to explain to everyone what's happening. You want to come up with some sort, of, some sort of statement that explains why your child is acting this way. And, and you don't want it to be, sorry, um, like she's possessed by a demon, um, which is what everyone's thinking. But you want to kind of give them some sort of, some sort of deflecting comment so you don't look like the bad parent or something. And so you say, you know, I think someone came by and, and, you know, there's this, there's this blob on the ground screaming and kicking. And, and I, 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 do, I do the statement. I said, uh, sorry, she didn't get a nap today. So she's a little tired. And, and this person uh, said, said these words. They said, well, that's no excuse for disobedience, is it? And, and then I punched him. No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. okay. Now, the statement was exactly true, Okay. It's exactly true. And at some point in my parenting career, it might have been helpful for someone to tell me that. That moment wasn't the time. Okay. You know, you see a, a mom out in the hallway struggling with, with uh, three kids, and, and they're just, you know, uh, they're excited and running around. And, and you say, uh, hey, excuse me, I have this parenting book that maybe you should read because there's some things that you are really not doing well right now. Just warning you. <laughs> Not wise, okay? Not wise, not gentle. 
there's some wisdom with our, our correction. There's some wisdom and graciousness, right? Graciousness. person's grieving. person's just lost a loved one, and, and they're grieving. And in their grief, they say something. You're kind of having this conversation, and you're just talking about it, and they say something about grief that maybe isn't exactly theologically correct. And is that really the time? Hey, excuse, you know, just to let you know, let me teach you something here because your theology is just a little bit off and let me help you. Not the time. There's wisdom. My ministry is a ministry of proclaiming Christ, warning everyone, and I teach everyone with, with wisdom. I'm wise in why I say something. Remember Paul in Ephesians 4 talks about you know, our words being, being gracious and designed to build each other up. So I'm, I'm thinking about, okay, why am I going to say this? I'm wise as I think about who I'm going to say something to. Am I making sure that I'm, I'm saying the right thing to the right person? I'm wise about when I say something. You know, sometimes I just, I just need to let, as, as, Paul, as uh, Peter says in 1 Peter uh, 4, just let love cover it. If there's eight things going on in your relationship with someone and, and there's like three really big things you guys are working on and you want to talk about number eight, you know, something tiny, they've, you know, love covers some things. Just let it go. My ministry isn't always warning everyone. There's wisdom about when also in terms of, of just... Sometimes it's just, it's just not the right time. Think about Proverbs 20, um, 26, verses 4 and 5. Proverbs 26, verse 4 talks about don't answer a fool according to his folly or you'll become like him. The next verse says the exact opposite. Do answer a fool according to his folly lest he become wise in his own eyes. What is the, what's, what's the, the, the writer saying there? Saying, hey, sometimes... Don't, don't talk to a fool or you're going to look foolish. Sometimes you should talk to a person who's being foolish because it will help them. They'll respond to it. We're wise. We're wise. So what do I do in ministry? Well, I, I proclaim Christ. Well, how, how do I do? What does it mean proclaim Christ? Well, I, I warn everyone, I teach everyone, and I do it with all wisdom. Proclaiming the Christ. Proclaiming the Messiah. That's, that's the what of my ministry. Now, why? Why do I do ministry? Look at verse 28, the second half. He says, we do this, that we may present everyone mature, or everyone that we can also mean complete in Christ. In fact, I kind of like the word complete there. Mature works. That's, that's an okay uh, word to use there as well. But I, I don't want you to get this idea that there's kind of like this spectrum of Christianity, and over here are the really immature people, and here is, is perfection. And the goal is that, like, to look at you, and you're here, and I'm here, therefore I'm more mature than you are, and I can be presented to Christ, and you can't. That's not what I think Paul has in mind. I think that's a very unhealthy way to view Christianity, because there are some areas that I'm going to be more mature than you, and there are going to be some areas that you're going to be more mature than me, and our ultimate standard is is Christ, right? So I like the idea here of, of completeness, and in fact, what does this look like? Look down into chapter two, and I'm not going to get much into this, because Ben's going to be covering this as he talks about Colossians 2. But let me just kind of whet your appetite here. Let me just read the verse. As you come to verse 2 of Colossians 2, Paul describes what this looks like, this, this maturity looks like. He says, you know, I'm, I'm working for this, working to this end. 
He says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So what does this look like to be complete in Christ? Well, it's this full assurance of understanding. It's the knowledge of God's mystery. What is the mystery? It's Christ. And in Christ, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, let me ask you this. Does that sound... Does that sound like a useful thing to have? Is that a useful goal for which to strive, having Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Does that sound like a good thing to have? Answer, yes. Is that a worthy end to which to strive? Absolute. You see, Paul could have been a short-term thinker. Paul could have said, you know what, my aim, my aim is to be found acceptable to first century Judaism. I want to be seen as a, a wise teacher. And at one point in his life, he was considered to be a learned scholar, a, a great teacher. But then he thought more long term. He encountered Christ, in whom are all the, the wisdom of, of not, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in. And he encountered Christ, and he said, okay. There's something better here. And he thought more long-term. And he thought about Christ's return and, and the ultimate end of humanity. He said, okay, there's, there's something better for which to strive with my life. And what is it? His long-term thinking is, look, I want to present every person complete in Christ. Every person I warn, he says in verse 28, every person I teach, and I do it with all wisdom so that I can present every person in, in my ministry complete, mature in Christ. That's the goal. We can sometimes suffer from short-term thinking, right? Short-term aims. I want to receive the accolades of, of man. I want to have a financial gain I want the esteem of a certain individual or a certain group of people. Man, those are short-term objectives. Paul goes long-term here. He says, look, with my finite amount of time, with my limited resource, I'm going to have a laser-like focus on one thing. Present in terms of my ministry. My objective is to present you complete in Christ. And as I think about my objective as, as a pastor, my time is finite. The things that we could do as a church is seemingly infinite, but our resource is finite. What are we going to focus on as a church? We're going to focus on presenting one another complete in Christ. And we've talked about this uh, every week, but it's something that was on my heart from looking at God's Word during, during sabbatical. I don't think this is going to be accomplished by us doing Christian life individually. I don't believe that we are going to achieve our objective of being presented complete in Christ and, compl and presenting one another complete in Christ. I don't think that's going to happen if we do the Christian life on our own. Paul says, I warn everyone, I teach everyone, 
everyone. I do it with all wisdom so I can present everyone complete in Christ. I have this, this mental image of, of someone finishing the race and, and walking into to eternity and, and uh, seeing God and, and I made it. Where's everybody else? I don't know. It wasn't an individual race. Oh, oops. Our goal is to do this thing together. And that requires committed relationships. Again, I was just very convicted by my lack of, of um, to put it bluntly, encouraging church membership. I would, I would guess that um, probably, uh, I would say about half of the people who, who come on a, on a Sunday morning are not, are not members of our church. And, and part of that is because we've, we've kind of grown quickly. Part of it is it takes a long time to fill out all the paperwork. <laughs> Every week someone says, hey, I have that form. It's completed. It's on my desk. But as we think about it, look, am I going to commit to the people who are around me? Am I going to commit? I believe publicly saying, hey, you have responsibility to admonish me. You have responsibility to teach me. I, I believe that's going to take place most effectively as we commit to membership and the body together. And as we commit to doing small group ministry together, ministering together in the context of, of small group relationships, I believe those are essential applications of pursuing this oneness in Christ, being complete in Christ. Last question here. How? How do I do ministry? Okay, if, if, if the why of ministry is that I, I want to present every person complete in Christ, that's, that's my objective now. Now, how do I do that? Well, look at what Paul says in, in verse 29. He says, how do I do this ministry? How do I, I, this is an amazing objective to present every person complete in Christ. And what we see here is, is how do I do ministry? It isn't just uh, in, a, in a lazy fashion. Ministry doesn't just kind of happen haphazardly. If we're going to achieve that end for which we're striving, there's some tough truths to catch. He says in verse 29, for this I, I toil. It's, it's hard work. It's a struggle, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Ministry, catch this, ministry is hard, hard work. It's toil. It's, it's labor. Listen to what Paul would say in, in 2 Corinthians. He's, he's talking to the Corinthians here, and he's describing his ministry among them in verse 11. He says, listen, guys. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, save one. Three times I was beaten with rods. I was stoned. I was shipwrecked for a night and day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger among false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Do you get the idea that Paul worked hard to accomplish this ministry? And he says to the Corinthians, remember he's writing to the Corinthians, he says, and on top of all this, apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches which includes you, Corinthians, because you have been a real pain, right? Paul says, man, I, I toil. 
This is hard work. Presenting people complete in Christ isn't something we do casually. If your engagement in ministry is half-hearted, you haven't understood ministry rightly. Pursuit of being presented complete in Christ and completing others, presenting others complete in Christ isn't done from your chair. It's not from, done from the lazy boy. It's hard, hard work. Paul's a hard worker. He appreciated other fellow laborers. And he, he says here, I, for this, this is the end for which I, I toil. And he says, I, I struggle. That word there describes like the struggle of an athlete. I, I struggle. But then he says this, it, I, I do it with the energy that God supplies. I do it with the energy that God supplies. There's, there's a tension here. I'm struggling, but the, the energy that I'm using is, is energy that comes from God. I work hard, but, but God enables it. Now, how do you explain that, that tension? How do you know when you're working hard on your own strength, and how do you know when you're working hard in God's strength? See the problem there? Let me just suggest that there's, there's some fruit we can look at. As we engage in ministry, who's, who's getting the glory? If, if I receive the glory for the ministry that I do, that's a sign that it's not being done in God's strength. I can't remember where I read this this last week, but someone said, I want people to say not, that was a good sermon you preached. I want them to say that was a beautiful passage, Right? Who receives the glory? What kind of fruit does your ministry pr- pr- uh, produce? If it's uh, fruit of the Spirit, you're going to see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control as part of the, the fruit of that labor of ministry. If, if it's self-directed ministry, you're going to see tensions and disdain for others and lack of peace, impatience with others in your heart. If you have a God-fueled ministry, you're going to see that your, your goals are, are God's goals. The, the discouragement you're going to feel is not discouragement of your inadequacies, but, but just discouragement, just perhaps it would be a godly discouragement. But your, your goals are going to be godly goals if God is the one who is fueling your ministry. D.A. Carson, in the book that I've referenced in the previous weeks about his dad's ministry, his dad, again, was a small town pastor, small church, talks about the beauty of the, the modest ministry. He says this, this is D.A. Carson in the introduction to the book. He says, most of us, however, serve in, in modest patches. Isn't that true? Most of us who serve in ministry serve in, in modest patches. Most pastors will not regularly preach to thousands, let alone tens of thousands. They will not write influential books. They will not supervise large staffs. And they will never see more than, than, than modest growth. It's true. If my objective, if my objective of my ministry is my, my self-glorification or, or self-fulfillment, th- things that are self-directed, I, I'm not going to receive joy from that. And furthermore, it's not going to be God's strength that is working through me. But that's not to be the passion of this church. It's not the passion of my ministry. What do I want? 
what do I want that only God can fuel? What kind of ministry do I want to labor hard in that only God can provide the strength for? I want to labor hard at proclaiming his son, Jesus Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And why do I want to do that? Why do you want to do that in your ministry? What do we want as a church? As a church, we don't want to make our own name great. As a church, we don't want to be known as the church with this aspect of us or this aspect of us. Ultimately, the ultimate thing that we want, that we want to to strive with all our might that God enables us to strive with, what do we want? We want to be complete in Christ. That's it. That's it. I want to know Christ, to be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes from myself, but righteousness that comes from him. I want to be complete in Christ, and I want to present every one of you in this room, in my church, in my sphere of influence, complete in Christ. Father, we pray that you would give us the strength to do that. Whatever ministries you've placed us in, that we'd be striving to be found complete in you, not laboring with the strength that comes from ourselves, but the strength that comes that only you can give us, producing fruit that only you can produce. Father, we can manufacture growth, we can manufacture buildings, we can manufacture programs, but Father, we cannot manufacture growth in love of your son Jesus. Please, Father, give us that, above all else, that we may be presented complete in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.